Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of medical conditions and explicit descriptions of pain and endometriosis symptoms. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, the medical mystery slash nightmare of endometriosis. Endometriosis is a debilitating chronic pain disease that affects millions of people in North America, but many people have never even heard of it. This disease is misunderstood, misdiagnosed, and ignored by many in the medical community. It affects the pelvic region, so in addition to horrible pain during daily life, there's often pain with sexual activity. Globally, it's estimated that 5-10% to of people with a uterus have endometriosis. That means if you don't have it, you likely know people who do. Endometriosis is so misunderstood by physicians who have outdated information, and researchers are still struggling to figure out causes and treatments. Between the misinformation about endometriosis and the limitations on accessibility and effectiveness in treatments, getting any relief for patients is challenging. Unfortunately, there is no cure, only symptom management. March is Endometriosis Awareness Month, and I thought it was high time that I learn more about endometriosis, challenge my own misunderstandings, and share what I learn with you. This episode will take you on the journey of three women who have endometriosis, from their initial symptoms, the epic journey to diagnosis, and a review of the limited treatments available. I will also address some of the major misunderstandings around endometriosis. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, let's get acquainted with our three guests. Uh, my name is Andréanne Leblanc. I'm a second-year psychology student at the University of Moncton, campus of Moncton. I'm the mom of a 12-year-old boy, and uh, I suffer from endometriosis. Hi, my name is Leonore. I'm almost 30 years old. I am from Normandy, France. I've been living in Moncton for four years now, and I've suffered from endometriosis ever since I was 13. Hi, and my name is Maggie Mint. McIntyre, I go by the pronoun she and her. I'm 23 years old and I'm in my first year of my master in social science at University of Moncton and I'm also suffering from endometriosis. They all met on the board of a local feminist organization and realized they all had endometriosis. Since this discovery, they've been able to be a support system for each other. They agreed to come on the podcast to share their stories in the hopes that they can help others as well. Endometriosis is named after the endometrium, which is a layer of the uterine lining. Endometriosis is cells similar to the endometrium that exist outside the uterus. Endometrial lesions and cysts grow throughout the pelvic cavity, on the outside of the uterus, fallopian tubes, bowel, and ovaries, among other things. While the pelvic region is often the site of many of these lesions, Recent research has emphasized the importance of thinking of this disease as systemic because it affects so many parts of the body. 
Endometriosis is believed to be caused by a combination of genetic and environmental factors, but the causes are woefully under-researched. Endometriosis is estrogen-dependent. Higher levels of estrogen make it worse, but the lesions themselves can also produce their own estrogen, so it can be challenging to get estrogen suppressed. Endometriosis is most common in people who have a uterus. However, it can occur rarely in people who do not have uteruses. Because endometriosis is seen as a menstrual disease and associated with women, like other female concerns, it's notoriously understudied in the medical community. Patients are often not taken seriously when they experience this severe pain. The research in this area only reports on women and does not include the nuance of people who are trans, non-binary, or other gender identities. As such, I will mostly use the word women throughout this podcast. But I want to reiterate, it's not just women who suffer with this problem. The symptoms of endometriosis are many. Just listen to this list from Leonor. So I've had, my, I've had symptoms of endometriosis over the past 15 years. Um, so that's including shortness of breath, very p- painful periods. As soon as I got them at 13 years old, I had shooting pains through my lower belly and my lower back. I, I said to my mom that I wanted to hang by my feet. I had repetitive UTIs, I had interstitial cystitis, which is frequent or painful urination, I had painful bowel movements, Uh, I've suffered from chronic diarrhea, bloating, breast pain, pain down my legs and thighs, uh, as well as pain with sex, so that's vestibulodynia or vaginismus, which is, for me, uh, manifests in my pelvic muscles being really tense all the time. I'm also chronically fatigued and I suffer from anxiety and depression. Maggie added that she has similar symptoms, but also... From my nerve system, I can feel it when I'm starting to flare up. I can feel it through my legs, my toes, and now I can feel it through my hands. So when I'm going through that, I cannot do much. I tend to not move. And then when that little episode um, stops, um, I'm constantly tired, like I need to sleep like for a full day on. Andreanne also has a long list of symptoms. It would be much quicker to enumerate the symptoms that I don't have. Uh, but because from from discussing endometriosis with a lot of people, what I've noticed is it's really those symptoms that trigger, you know, uh, an aha moment to go, oh, wait, that's what I'm experiencing. So I will take the time, even though it might be a long list to name them all. Severe pain during menstruation, very heavy periods resulting in sometimes symptoms of anemia, such as cold hands, cold feet, dizziness, lightheadedness, weakness, and headaches. Uh, a lot of pelvic and abdominal pain on a regular basis, so outside of my, my regular period, um, that presents as a constant feeling of tightness in the abdomen, burning, scratching, scraping sensations, and sometimes stabbing or shooting pains. On my best days, because I don't have a pain-free day, so on my best days, I feel like a low hum of pain that I describe as like white noise in my uterus. And on my worst days, the pain can be so intense that I have limited mobility, intense nausea, sweating, and dizzy spells from the pain. Um, I've also experienced very painful endometriomas, so ovarian cysts. The worst pain I've ever felt in my life was actually an ovarian cyst rupturing. Um, I was temporarily blinded by the pain, seeing only white, vomiting, being unable to get up off the floor for several minutes before being rushed to the hospital. I've had uh, chronic lower back and leg pain. Another symptom is pain with sex on occasion. It's something that I've 
discovered to be as wildly fascinating as it is frustrating is that personally, I can experience intense pain simply with arousal and not just intercourse. These lists of symptoms are overwhelming to hear, let alone live with, and they interfere with almost all aspects of life. A person's journey to understanding they have endometriosis often begins with unexplained pain. It usually begins in adolescence with heavy periods and severe period pain. We're told that period pain is normal and to be expected, but it isn't. Women and girls experiencing this pain are often dismissed by doctors who don't take it seriously. I've said this once already, it's going to be a theme throughout the episode. In fact, many people with endometrial pain are misdiagnosed or told it's all in their head. This ends up with the first part of endometriosis just being years of unexplained, debilitating pain and other symptoms that interfere with daily life. And these symptoms keep getting worse as more endometriosis lesions develop. Here's Andreanne's story. Yeah, so I suffered from endometriosis since the onset of menstruation. Um, I've had debilitating periods that left me bedridden and unable to perform the simplest tasks. So I was unable to attend school for three to four days each month even at that age. Um, and I was unable to work consistently consistently once I entered the workforce. Um, as I grew older, the condition worsened. And what used to be four days a month of excruciating pain became 10, then 15, then 20 um, at the worst point for me. And it became daily and intense chronic pain. I was in and out of doctor's offices for years. Uh, OBGYNs, gastro specialists. I saw naturopaths, dietitians, sexologists, you name it. I was desperate for answers and not getting them. Uh, I was told that I was simply stressed, that I was just prone to cysts, that I had a low pain threshold, um, that I suffered from possible PTSD, that I might have fibromyalgia. And I was finally misdiagnosed with major depressive disorder as a result of my unexplained chronic pain and my family doctor running out of ways to dismiss me. These misdiagnoses are not rare. In fact, my story is devastatingly common, as it took 14 years for me to get a diagnosis. That's 14 years left untreated for a very real and very physical medical condition that was not killing me, but was taking my life from me. Although I find it shocking that it took her 14 years to get diagnosed, as she notes, this is not uncommon. The combination of not taking women's pain seriously and the challenges involved in actually diagnosing endometriosis results in extreme delays in diagnosis and getting treatment. Studies report average delays in diagnosis ranging from 5 to 10 years. Telling women it's normal or all in their head increases the length of time patients suffer without treatment and also leads to secondary psychological outcomes from having their reality constantly denied. While we have learned a lot more about endometriosis since the early 2000s, Maggie's more recent experience was not much better. After experiencing intense pain while studying in the library at school, Maggie went to the ER. When I got to the ER, I collapsed on the floor because I, I was not able to walk. I was so much in pain, and then they put me in a wheelchair, and I was seeing dark. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what was going on anyways. So then when I went in the ER, they passed some tests and sorry, the expression, but they just told me I was full of shit. They gave her morphine, told her she was constipated and sent her on her way. And a week after that, I had to go back to the ER for the same thing. And they still didn't believe me. So I really gave up on the health system. I was like, sorry, but I was like, 
for that. Like, I'm so done. Like, I there's something wrong and there's no one that can help me. So I really felt hopeless. So since um, December 2019, I dealt with the pain by myself. Leonor was first diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome instead of endometriosis. And she notes that her own father, who's a physician, didn't even suspect endometriosis because of his misunderstandings of the disease. Eventually, hopefully, the person with endometriosis finds a healthcare provider who's able to point them in the direction of a diagnosis. Perhaps they are experiencing pain with penetration and are referred to a pelvic floor physiotherapist or they eventually get a referral to a gynecologist, or they read about endometriosis on the internet and can bring it to their doctor, or they hear a podcast like this. Finally, they can have a name for what they are experiencing. However, confirmation of endometriosis is challenging. Right now in the process of getting diagnosed, I'm going in for an ultrasound this Friday. (laughs) So um, this is still happening for me. so I'm, I'm waiting to see if the ultrasound is able to locate any endometriosis. It's not uncommon that uh, an ultrasound will not pick up anything. Um, so it really depends on where the lesions are located and how experienced the radiologist is at reading the ultrasound. So in the end, uh, laparoscopic surgery is really the only way to diagnose endometriosis. As she notes... For some people, an ultrasound is enough to find evidence of endometriosis, but that's not always the case. In many cases, the only way to confirm endometriosis is through laparoscopic surgery to confirm existence of endotissues and lesions. So during this, they also do a biopsy to see what the tissue is. Accessing the surgery can be challenging depending where you live, and the surgery itself can be risky for endometriosis patients who are at higher risk for developing scar tissue, which can then cause additional problems. Many people are given a probable diagnosis based on imaging and or symptoms. In Canada, a 2018 nationally representative sample of women found that 7% of that sample had been diagnosed with endometriosis. When they broke it down by age range, it was 5% for younger women and almost 10% for women aged 35 to 39. This difference could represent the delay in people getting diagnosed. And of course, so many people are left undiagnosed. It's hard to know the true number of people living with endometriosis. Once someone has a diagnosis, patients can then start on one of many mediocre treatments. Once again, I've invited Katie Kelly, pelvic floor physiotherapist at Reconnect Health Center in Moncton, to give us a summary of some treatments. So you have a lot of experience uh, and education around care and treatment for endometriosis. Can you walk us through what that looks like? So for physiotherapy, I want to be very clear that physiotherapists don't treat endometriosis, the disease. So we leave that for medical management. And medical management usually includes... Um, kind of working from your least aggressive treatment option up to your more aggressive treatments or more invasive treatment options. So typically patients are offered things like hormonal treatments to see if that can be helpful. They're often offered analgesics, so your anti-inflammatories, your pain medications. We know that there is now a very important central sensitization component for pelvic pain disorders. So central sensitization is when someone has been living in a chronic pain state 
for a while, for, you know, three, anywhere between three to six months. And we start to see changes in the nervous system. So the nerves become a little bit more sensitive, a bit more jumpy. The brain processes painful information a bit more differently. And our abilities to naturally reduce pain signalings might not be as strong. So that's been a component that we've addressed in physiotherapy for a long time. But I think that we're really seeing the medical community step up. And in that capacity, they're looking at using medications like neuromodulators. So these would be um, like your antidepressants, amitriptylines, your nerve pain medications like pregabalin, gabapentin, Lyrica, that sort of thing. Um, so we're seeing more and more of the kind of nervous system treatment for endometriosis. And then there's surgical procedures as well. So, so there's things like ablation surgeries and things like excision, excision surgeries um, that are being done also. And then on top of that, the recommendation is to do complementary therapies. So that's where pelvic floor physiotherapy falls into that category, as well as psychology, exercise, diet, and sleep. So trying to really cover all of the standard pillars of health. I tend to like to include uh, stress management in there as well, because we see all of these things tie in with our ability to cope with pain. Andreanne is on continuous oral contraceptives. And currently what I'm taking as a more of a masking treatment is continuous birth control. So I suppress my periods uh, as much as possible, which does not prevent flare-ups, does not prevent symptoms. It just tends to make it a little bit easier and decrease the amount of flare-ups that I get. Uh, but it's not really a form of treatment. It's more masking my symptoms. Taking hormonal contraceptives or getting a hormonal IUD can reduce symptoms by regulating and suppressing estrogen. A more invasive method is to take the GnRH agonists, which shut down the entire hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis so that the ovaries are no longer producing hormones. That's what Maggie's currently on. Right now, I'm on a Oridisa, which is like a menopause, like Andrean um, just talked about previously. And that has a lot of side effects and it's hard on the body. Um, can I see if it works? I'm not sure yet. <laughs> um, maybe a little bit, but not really. Like the pain is still there. That's pretty much my process right now. There are a lot of long-term side effects of GnRH agonists and antagonists, like bone density and cardiovascular disease, in addition to the traditional menopause symptoms like hot flashes. Andreanne was on this treatment for several years and is still going for testing for bone density issues. As Katie and the women with endometriosis noted, many of these treatments need to be used in combination with other things to increase effectiveness. And the journey to finding some sort of relief can be long and taxing. It also requires time, attention, and believing patience. Katie noted how challenging this is in many medical settings. Another important factor that I think we should discuss is just the, the importance of listening to for me to listen to my patients, because I think a lot of them have been seen by many practitioners. And I feel bad for the patients. I feel bad for the pr practitioners, to be honest, because I think that I hear, you know, horror stories of how women have been treated and how they feel like they haven't been listened to and they've been dismissed by the medical system. Our medical system is not really conducive for, for practitioners to have a lot of time to sit down and talk to women and listen to them or to explain and educate them. And I think that's a big disservice to this population because I really am a true believer that 
more education around your symptoms and around your disease really do help you have a better understanding and understand what the best managements are, best management strategies are for, for your particular case. So I really do spend a good half an hour just like sit down and tell me, tell me your story. I try my very hardest not to interrupt them. I'm getting better at that, <laughs> but it still does take practice. Katie also shared how physiotherapy can help specifically. So as a pelvic floor physiotherapist, as I said, I don't treat the endometriosis, but what what physiotherapists do treat are the secondary um, factors that have been caused by endometriosis. So our specialties lie in neuromuscular and reconnective tissue rehabilitation. So the pelvic floor muscles, which are the muscles that run from the pubic bone all the way back to the tailbone, can have changes to them when you live with pain. And we see this with a number of pelvic pain disorders. So endometriosis is is no different in that sense. But oftentimes what we'll see is that the muscles will become elevated or tighter, or maybe they're guarded. I kind of equate it to people who hold their shoulders really tight or their jaw really tight. So sometimes we have to teach them how to lengthen and relax their muscles. Sometimes we have to improve flexibility. Sometimes we have to do a little bit of behavior training because they tend to guard through the day. So giving them suggestions on how not to guard so much. And oftentimes these, this, this muscle issue that we're seeing is, um, is displayed in things like pain with intercourse or pain with penetration, sometimes urinary urgency, so they feel like they have to pee all the time. Sometimes they'll even have leakiness. We'll see sometimes constipation, pain with bowel movements. So it can manifest itself in a bunch of different symptoms, but the cause can be um, that underlying pelvic floor muscle tone secondary to having endometriosis. On top of that, we do also see that Physios are kind of experts in non-pharmaceutical pain management. So a lot of patients can be frustrated by the amount of medications that they're on or that their pain levels are so high that they really feel like they're missing out on life. We really like to talk to them about the use of um, hot and cold packs. We like to talk to them about the use of a TENS device, and we use that often with um, our endometriosis patients. So a TENS device is a tiny little device, and I used to say it looks like a pager, but I'm getting old enough now that my patients coming in don't know what a pager is. So it's like a little tiny black box about the size of a deck of cards, and you clip it onto your, your belt or your pants, and it has little wires on it that stick on your body, and it emits a small electrical stimulation. And you can either put it on your low abdomen if you're feeling kind of like low abdominal crampy feelings, or you can put it on your back near your spine where the uterine nerves come out. So kind of along where the little dimples are in the low back area. And you can set the device to work in a couple of different ways, but largely it works as a way to disrupt pain signaling and serve as a way to give you kind of an endogenous opioid response. So your natural pharmaceutical cabinet is kind of released into your body with those settings. And it's something that is covered often by a lot of insurance companies. And I say it's not as good, you know, I'm not making promises this is going to take your pain away, but this might get you to work. This might get you to school. This might get you to your best friend's wedding. And it's kind of an inconspicuous little device. And it's a great option for people who are just needing a little bit more pain relief that's not based on pharmaceuticals. And it's something that that they can manage themselves. So physiotherapy can help with symptoms, but not actually treat the problem. The most aggressive treatment is laparoscopic surgery. Currently, gynecologic surgeons can do ablation or excision surgeries. 
Ablation is the burning or freezing off of a thin layer of cells, and excision removes the tissue completely. The current consensus is that the results of excision surgery are more effective and last longer. Previously, the healthcare professionals thought that removal of the uterus and ovaries would cure endometriosis. Unfortunately, this is not the case, and neither is recommended anymore. We've talked about the symptoms, diagnosis, and treatments for endometriosis, and it all sounds terrible. It takes a huge cost on a person's life. I asked Andreanne how it affected her over the long term. So for the impacts of uh, endo being understudied or misunderstood on my life, the impacts are plentiful. Like the delay in diagnosis, for one, for me, that meant years of obstacles and earning capability. So the financial burden that that inflicted on me was so great that it's kept me living in poverty to this day. Um, I was unable to even fathom taking on post-secondary education before my diagnosis or chasing any kind of dream as I could just not rely on my body to not keep me rooted in bed uh, because of this mysterious pain. So the amount of school and work absences that I've been forced to take because of this condition created an almost insurmountable pit of debt and perpetual entry-level salaries. Um, This financial burden also kept me feeling trapped in an abusive relationship for nearly a decade. Uh, It impacted my self-esteem, my relationships, my professional life, and my mental health in enormous ways. Andreanne's, along with Maggie and Leonor's experiences, track with the research on quality of life in endometriosis patients. It can be very low. There are also fertility risks, both from the endometriosis and possibly the treatments. Maggie talks about being 23 with endometriosis and not knowing if she'll be able to have kids in the future. I'm still in school, like I'm still living the life, you know, like that's not, but now it's been in my head, like, am I actually going to be able to have kids? Like, is it going to happen? Like, do I have to adopt? Like, I don't know. So that is something right now that I've been doing with my mental health. And it's really, really hard. And uh, I don't know who you turn to as in like, you know, they'll say, well, if, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but like it, it's, it's more than that, you know, like it's, Anyways, it's it's a lot to go through. They also all talked about how much gaslighting from the medical community had harmed them. Being told you are exaggerating, crazy, or imagining something for so many years can undermine your sense of sanity, your trust in yourself, and certainly your trust in the medical community. It's very hard to go into meeting with new medical professionals without your guard up. Leonor described it as the feeling of going into battle. This leads people to avoid medical procedures. Andreanne quoted author Lisa Unger from her book, Under My Skin, saying, The more you assert your reality, the more unstable you seem. The mental health costs from both the treatment by medical professionals and from the chronic pain are high. Something that really struck me about the interview with Leonor, Andreanne, and Maggie was how knowledgeable they were. They knew the research inside and out, knew all the mechanisms involved in the disease, and they knew all the research. They are experts because they have to be. They have to fight constantly to be taken seriously and to be believed. All three women also noted that they are white, cisgender women navigating the system. People of more marginalized identities are even more likely to be dismissed and ignored. And many, 
many people do not have the financial resources to be able to go to private clinics and specialists. This varies depending on where you are in the world, but even in Canada with our universal-ish healthcare, there are still so many out-of-pocket expenses associated with trying to get treatment and diagnosis for endometriosis. Studies have also been done to calculate the financial cost in terms of lost wages and productivity. A multinational study of 1,400 women undergoing laparoscopic surgery for various reasons found that the average lost work per week for women with endometriosis was an average of 10 hours. That's a quarter of the average full-time worker's hours. For many, even when they are physically at work, they still struggle with actually being able to accomplish anything because of the pain and fatigue. A small study from Canada published in 2011 estimated the cost of endometriosis at $5,200 per year per patient with surgically diagnosed endometriosis. That includes the direct medical costs as well as indirect costs like loss of productivity and leisure time. Only counting the 5.3% of Canadian women with laparoscopically confirmed endometriosis, the estimated cost of endometriosis was $1.8 billion per year. Of course, that isn't counting all of the people who have not been officially diagnosed. The financial costs are clearly much higher. Another cost is the risks of undergoing some treatments. Many endometriosis patients are so desperate to have some relief from the pain that they will try whatever their doctor suggests, but may not have the risks and side effects of that treatment explained to them. This was Leonor's experience with initially being prescribed Oralissa, a GnRH antagonist. It's so important for doctors to be able to explain all possible effects of a medication, but many do not. I also want to quickly debunk some additional myths about endometriosis. One that all of my guests today have heard is that having a baby will help endometriosis. This belief comes from the idea that endometriosis is a menstrual disease, and so being pregnant and not having a period will stop the symptoms. There is no evidence that pregnancy will help with endometriosis, and it is not a recommendation from any of the major medical societies that deal with endometriosis. So please, doctors, stop spreading this myth. Historically, a major theory is that endometriosis is caused by retrograde menstruation. So this is when menstruation goes into the fallopian tubes and other areas of the pelvic cavity instead of out of the body. But it's been argued that this happens in 80% of people who menstruate, yet only a fraction of them develop endometriosis. Additionally, endometriosis lesions are endometrium-like, but not the same as the uterine tissue. So there are doubts that, about this as a theory. There's still a lot of research, particularly in animal models, that uses this theory of retrograde menstruation. So it's still seen as plausible, but there's evidence to suggest otherwise. Another belief is that endometriosis pain specifically happens during the menstrual period. While endometriosis symptoms might start during menstruation for many, as you have heard from the women in this podcast, and as we see in the research, it extends far beyond period pain. Two stories keep coming back to me during my time with Andreanne, Leonor, and Maggie, is that they struggle to get diagnosed because they're not taken seriously. 
And even when they do get diagnosed with endometriosis, there's no support for them either. Here's how Maggie puts it. I feel that her condition is not even like people don't believe us enough to invest um, for treating us. And, you know, how does it make sense to wait like for two and four years of like pain like that, that you've been suffering? Um, I just wish sometimes I could people put people in my shoe um, because the comments that we get um, are often always should. It's not that bad. You guys are just acting up. You know, it's probably because you're really tired. Well, you know, you do a lot of stuff and et cetera and et cetera. But like after a while, you just, you know, you're just disappointed about just society of not believing in you and just the health system in general, because after a while, you're just like, is it worth it? to keep fighting or should I just stop and just deal with it like I've been dealing all these past years you know I do I did it so do I just keep going or like I just wait and wait and wait so what can be done to help those suffering with endometriosis in Canada Leonor has some ideas and I think something that is really clear is that there's a lack of funding when it comes to endometriosis um, the lack of funding comes from a lot of different places the first one is patriarchy women's pain is not taken seriously um gender minorities is pain is not taken seriously um i think another problem is that because there is little funding for this the doctors who want to specialize in endometriosis are paid less and they have less or time and in order to be able to really dedicate to learning about endometriosis, they need to be doing it every day. And if you're paid less than your fellow OBGYNs, or if you have less OR time, then it's not sustainable. So our doctors who are actually taking the time to focus their practice solely on endometriosis do so at their expense as well. So what really what we really need is a national a national action plan for endometriosis and um, Endo Canada has launched a, a new plan for people to actually send letters to their MPs and to pressure them into voting for a national plan. There is a national plan in Australia. One was just announced in France a few months ago, and now it's time for Canada to also take responsibility for the care of people with endometriosis and pledge to take action and to give funds and to actually pay attention to this serious health issue that is also costing a lot of money to the government. Leonor also mentioned an organization called I Care Better that vets pelvic and endometriosis specialists so that patients can find people who are verified to be well-trained and provide good care. You can find this information at icarebetter.com. I will note that most of the specialists listed are from the U.S., but there are a few from other countries. There are different types of endometriosis, and one differentiation is between superficial lesions and deep infiltrating endometriosis, which has the acronym DIE. This is used unironically throughout the literature, and every time I read it, I marveled at how fitting it is. Sure, endometriosis won't kill you, but the agony it can cause can feel worse than death. Pelvic pain is never normal. 
If you experience any of the pain that you've heard described in this episode, please see a healthcare professional and push for them to take you seriously. If your doctor won't listen, there are private options like pelvic floor physiotherapists who can provide support and documentation for physicians. There are also lots of good online resources. One recommended by my guests was nancysnookendo.com, which I'll link to in the show notes. It has tons of info and links to research and other resources. Unfortunately, there is no cure yet for endometriosis, but there are treatment options that can help with suffering. We need so much more research on this understudy topic to work towards a cure. As discussed, you can write your MPs to increase funding and request a national action plan. What really stands out to me is how many people are living with endometriosis. There are millions of people in Canada and the U.S. alone. They and their loved ones are a powerful source of people who can band together and fight for more research to be done and more resources to be dedicated to endometriosis. Of course, it's exhausting to have to be an advocate for yourself and your disease constantly. So that's why we really need all of us to fight for more research and support for this disease. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Dawn Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings, and of course you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. DoWeKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.